You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Barry Bloom, the Joan L. and Julius H. Jacobson Research Professor of Public Health and former dean of the school. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, July 20th. I'm happy to uh, answer and I look forward to answering questions. Today's an exciting day. There's a new vaccine paper just published today in The Lancet. I'd be happy to chat about that or the previous paper in the New England Journal. But any other questions that I am able to answer, I'd be happy to try. All right, looks like our first question. Hi, um, thanks very much. I have a couple questions uh, about vaccines, if that's okay. Uh, to start, just I'd, I'd love to get your reaction to the um, Oxford-AstraZeneca data from this morning. Well, I was uh, very pleased to see the paper and um, quite pleased but not surprised um, to see the results, which are uh, certainly encouraging that after two shots, um, everybody produced uh, antibodies uh, that bound to the um, spike protein of this coronavirus and also by multiple assays showed some degree of neutralizing activity. Um, so it produced the desired immune response as best one could tell from in vitro or test tube studies. Uh, but a lot of people in the trial had at the highest dose uh, some mild but uh, irritating uh, adverse effects. And one of the interesting aspects was that a small group got the equivalent of Tylenol or acetaminophen, and that seemed to uh, reduce significantly um, the minor side effects of sore arms, fatigue, muscles pain, um, which indicates that they could probably run the next phase, phase three trials, and cause a little less uh, discomfort uh, in those who receive the initial vaccination. Got it. And then, um, a I guess, like, sort of more, more broadly, um, one thing I'm trying to wrap my head around is uh, how much progress is, is being made so quickly on the vaccine front. And I know, you know, they still have to go through efficacy trials, but still, like, we're starting phase three trials for a virus that no one knew existed until about six months ago. So, and, you know, I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but to think about something like HIV, which has been around for decades without a vaccine. And so I guess I'm wondering like how, whether it's the, the virus itself or new technology or just like the sort of global efforts, like what has enabled this level of progress this fast for this, for this virus? So I have uh, an understanding that uh, this goes back a long time. Um, and I'm not sure you want my view of history, but uh, I will share it, that after 9-11 and after the anthrax outbreaks in 2001, there was a meeting at the National Academy of Sciences that looked at the potential for terrorism and the vulnerability of the U.S. Uh, to both terrorism and things like natural pandemics. And I co-chaired the committee with Joshua Lederberg on biosecurity. And what we learned is this country was remarkably unprepared to deal with major uh, bioterrorism or 
even things like influenza pandemics that we knew had occurred every 50 to 100 years. Subsequent to that, this country created something called the National Pandemic Influenza Plan. I think starting in something like 2006, um, after we saw the potential impact of uh, SARS, to realize that we were still vulnerable. And a plan was created and updated multiple times, the latest being 2017, to deal with the anticipated threat of a viral pandemic, probably influenza. Clearly, no one anticipated the coronavirus um, outbreak, but we were prepared in the following sense, and particularly with funding from BARDA, uh, the Biological Advanced Research uh, Authority. They decided at some point that it was really too time-consuming to make vaccines as we have always made them. The fastest vaccine ever made was mumps vaccine in four years. The longest vaccine was varicella. It took 27 years to get it licensed. And if we had a pandemic, we can't wait four years. And so what they did is put up a request for proposals, creative ideas, that create a vaccine against a new viral agent within 60 days. That was unheard of, unprecedented, and yet that's exactly what's happened, both for this adenovirus, this chimpanzee adenovirus, and for the RNA vaccines. What was created is not individual tailored vaccines uh, from scratch, but platforms like RNA or adenoviruses or vesicular stomatitis virus, VSV, or measles virus, where one could simply substitute an antigen for any new agent into a known host safe or relatively safe vaccine platform and thereby speed things up fantastically. So the Moderna vaccine was produced from the time the cDNA sequence was published to the first phase one studies in humans in 65 days, meeting pretty close the criteria that BARDA had established. And uh, other adenoviruses are on the way, and the Brits had been producing this vaccine with chimp adenovirus against MERS and SARS, and had already done phase one studies for both of those. So they were in a good position to know what the adverse effects were likely to be. They understood and predicted that and also that they would be relatively minor and would likely produce good immune responses. And the study published today confirms that on a larger scale. And the next step really is to expand those to protect against infection and disease in the real world. And that will probably require something on the order of 15,000 volunteers to go into such a study. A longer answer than you requested, I apologize. No, 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 I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Great. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks. Um, I just wanted to ask on the, the death issue. I mean, obviously we've heard some 
uh, theories or reassurances that that deaths have not been rising as much um, recently. And I, I just wonder what what are you seeing in the kind of death statistics? I mean, are they rising again? Do you expect it to get, you know, just as bad as it was, you know, in April or whatever? Or is there some hope that it's younger people now and we have better treatments and that sort of thing? Well, it is clear that the death rate uh, is rising. Um, and as you know, death rates follow infection rates by something like two to three weeks. And so the question is, will it be as bad as it was in New York? And I think many of us are hopeful that it will not be for a couple reasons. One is, um, I think older folks like myself took our lesson from our vulnerability in New York, and many of those are staying at home to a greater extent, which means, as you suggested, a larger percentage of people mixing with other people and being exposed are younger people who are less likely to die. And I think the second thing is as long as intensive care units are not overwhelmed, uh, Clinicians have learned a great deal about uh, how best to be able to care for patients, both in the intermediate stages of hospitalization and uh, beginning to be how to deal with them better as they require uh, intensive care and possibly intubation. We have a long way to go on new interventions for care. Remdesivir is a drug that may help the more severe uh, forms of the disease. Uh, dexamethasone may prevent the immune uh, consequences that apparently lead to systems failure. So we've, we're a little better off now than we were in the New York outbreak in April, uh, but we are still hopeful there'll be uh, new drugs. Got it, thanks. Next question. Hi there, thanks so much. Uh, my question is about the distribution question, I guess. We, so now <laughs> we, have, we have the um, the Oxford vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, and there was a, there were results from China as well that seemed encouraging, I guess. So we, ha we have multiple potential, you know, winter vaccines, I guess, moving along. But I, I don't really know, and maybe nobody does, how we go from uh, there to obviously, uh, you know, demand will outstrip supply for some period of time. You know, do, do you anticipate that it's going to be a case of who can pay for it gets it initially, or do you see more framework in terms of uh, being developed in terms of getting what, what European leaders are talking about as an equitable distribution? But I, I mean, we haven't done this before, right? Are we just gonna be making it up as we go along to a certain extent? Thanks. Um. I think you've asked a really key question, and there are two, two components of that that worry me. Uh, the first and most obvious, um, that shouldn't be obvious at all, is the scientific community is well aware uh, that our tools for preventing the spread of this virus, other than complete lockdown, are really limited, which is telling people to wear masks in public and in uh, indoors in public places, uh, distancing oneself six feet away. Uh, difficult to get compliance in the real world 
and particularly difficult among young people who really want to socialize, and it's very hard to enforce. Those are the tools. They're not terrific. They worked in China, they worked in Korea, they worked to an extent in many other places. They appear not to be working right now in several parts of our country, and that's very worrisome. Uh, the second question is, if we did have one or more vaccines that was pretty safe and, or very safe, and um, effective better than 50%, which is the criterion that will be used for phase three trials, the real worry here is whether people will take it or sufficient numbers of people will take it to provide the equivalent of community protection or what people call herd immunity. And that is a worry nowhere else in the world where I think people would be very happy to be pr protected against this vaccine and uh, this virus. Uh, but it is a continuing and uh, I think um, expanding concern that many of us in the scientific uh, business uh, really worry about and that is very difficult to deal with in scientific terms. Having said that, the question that you're asking is one that I am pleased to say people have begun to think about. Um, I will uh, disclaimer indicate that uh, colleagues uh, of mine um, and I have sent a paper to the New England Journal, which we are hopefully they will consider, uh, raising precisely this question. Um, there is sufficient distrust of government scientists uh, that somebody has to think very carefully about when this, these new vaccines become available. Uh, on January 2nd, there's not going to be 3 billion vaccines or 5.5 billion vaccines on January 2nd to vaccinate every people around the world, every person around the world. How do we deal with a scarce resource in the fairest and most inclusive way. And there are a couple obvious possibilities. I think most people would say uh, possibly uh, that maybe those people who are most at risk should have highest priority. And who are they? Well, those are uh, healthcare personnel. They're people, uh, residents of nursing homes. They're uh, people who are incarcerated in prisons. They're African-Americans and uh, Hispanics and Latinx individuals. Um, how do we prioritize those groups who have traditionally never been prioritized for getting to the head of the line for healthcare? The alternative, an alternative way of looking at it is to say, People in nursing homes die from this disease, but they're not big spreaders of the disease. Um, people in prisons are not big spreaders of this disease, except within the context of their prisons. If you really want to stop spread, it may be the biggest transmitters are likely to be young people who congregate, who are not following distancing uh, and wearing masks. And Perhaps school children or uh, teenagers, which we now know are quite good at transmitting infections that would be school age or uh, university age people. 
that's another target. And that's what an epidemiologist would say would be the highest priority is to interrupt transmission. And vaccines are one way to do that. And the question then is, how do we make that decision? And our recommendation will be, it should not be made by the government. Uh, there is so much politicization right now of everything from wearing masks to whether Tony Fauci, uh, one of my personal heroes, can appear on television, that the decision of this uh, prioritization for access to this very rare, uh, in the beginning, commodity should be made by an independent group. Our recommendation would be the National Academy of Medicine, which has the capacity to bring together social scientists, ethicists, and the people from a wide variety of uh, social and medical disciplines. They're an independent agency. And if they were to do that, my recommendation would be, this is something that requires a lot of community outreach, getting uh, input from various communities um, to find out where the public's priorities are and what would gen engender confidence that if you're not in the first group, the fairest decision was made of those who it makes the fairest use of vaccines. So that's a long-winded answer as well. But if this is not done well, if it comes from on high, there will be, and, and the public is not part of that process, engaged providing views, I think there will be even increased distrust in vaccines that would be a tragedy uh, if we want to end this epidemic uh, or at least reduce it to a tolerable level a year from uh, this year. Do you have any follow-up questions? Uh, I do, just a quick one, and thank, and thank you for that answer. I'm, I'm curious, you know, given that there's an international component to this and a lot of these are being developed overseas, are there complications in terms of approvals? I mean, China is an obvious one, right, because they have six in trials at the moment, and if they strike gold, you know, I don't know how that would get approved to be distributed in the U.S. necessarily, but, uh, you know, does, does, does every country have to make their own decisions about which vaccine they think is safe to distribute? Thanks. So the Chinese, I am certain, will make their own decision. Um, as you know, WHO has tried to organize the major European countries and had reached out to the United States without success to form a consortium of vaccine-producing countries in the West to set up guidelines that would enable sharing of whatever vaccines look promising not just with their own uh, populations in a nationalistic way, but to set aside vaccines in a way to protect not only their own people, but as the productivity uh, production of more and more vaccines occurs, to share those with developing countries that don't have the capacity uh, to produce vaccines at the millions and billions of doses required. Um, I've worked for a long time for WHO. I have an enormous amount of respect for what they can do that no one else can do. Speed is not one of their characteristics. Um, and I understand concerns about relegating um, 
the decisions on any national vaccines to an international body. The United States has not joined that uh, EU coalition with WHO. So we will probably go our own way. Um, in terms of the Europeans, certainly um, the Oxford group and the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine that you uh, know came out today has already made arrangements with a very good uh, high production capacity in India, the Serum uh, Institute of India. So they have already thought about having local production in India and Asia. Uh, we will probably have to have a debate uh, in terms of priorities of how we provide vaccines to the international community. It would be, I think, a diplomatic, political, and ethical problem or tragedy if it was only used by prioritizing Americans to let all the rest of the world either deal with other countries' vaccines and not sharing with the benefits of uh, United States science. That would be a great tragedy. Thanks so much. Next question. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, hey, Dr. Bloom, I know this isn't necessarily your, your wheelhouse on testing here, but I have a colleague that is um, looking into just the, the kind of obscene delays that we're seeing down here in Florida, where we've really over relied on, on private labs and test results are taking two weeks, I think, on average now. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts uh, on this general problem and, and how do we how do we extricate ourselves from this over-reliance on, on private labs and is pool testing um, the answer has been, has, has been floated by the Trump administration? What I've said in previous of these uh, conferences with the press that I think is somewhat misunderstood, certainly by the public, is the testing is not the intervention that interrupts transmission of this virus. It is the isolation or the quarantine of people who test positive and the identification of contacts and isolation of what would be required to stop trains of transmission. So testing is only as good as people will agree to isolate, share the names of contacts they have uh, been in contact with in the last 24 or 48 hours, and of those contacts who agree to stay home for two weeks. Um, and I think that's what I would feel really needs to be emphasized. When you have 7,000 new cases a day, there is absolutely no possibility, assuming between five and 10 contacts per case, there are enough uh, contact tracers in the public health system anywhere to do 50,000 contact tracings, assuming people can give them information on who they contacted and that people will stay, uh, answer the phone call from the contact tracers. So we're in a real bind with contact tracing once the numbers get very large. I honestly don't see an easy solution. More and more testing would be better, uh, but the numbers are pretty overwhelming to identify all the contacts, get them to stay home, and after two weeks, hope that they no longer can transmit. 
What gives me some optimism in terms of testing is uh, new tests that are along the way. These are rapid tests. They will not be as sensitive as the PCR uh, diagnostic tests that we use now. They will be cheaper, and a number of them may actually be able to be done do-it-yourself in the household. And I think we need uh, to know whether they are sensitive enough, and I don't know the data, I don't think any of them are published, how quickly they can be decided upon by the FDA, recognizing their limitations in sensitivity, uh, such that if a positive is found, you are very likely to have coronavirus infection and then contact tracing, isolation, and all that makes sense. If you're negative, it doesn't guarantee likely that you are not infected and that poses some threat to the community. But something that can be done really rapidly um, and people can do for themselves cheaply seems to me uh, to have a huge public health advantage. And if you're thinking about opening up businesses, to have cheap tests that everybody that goes back to work in those businesses can do at low cost has real advantages. We will miss a few spreaders that are asymptomatic, but if everybody who is asymptomatic that has enough virus to transmit is likely to be positive, and those that have only low doses of virus not likely to be very contagious, we would do very well. So I would think from the government's point of view, and I know uh, the director of NIH, Francis Collins, is really pushing hard on this. Um, I would hope that by the end of the summer, we would have these low-cost tests available with a sensitivity likely to pick up those likely to be the biggest spreaders, and we'll miss some that are low spreaders, but if they get to be higher levels and have the ability to test themselves every couple of days, twice a week, we will still do better than we're doing with the molecular tests at the moment at lower cost. Did you have a follow-up? No, actually, I had a follow-up and you, you answered it in your follow-up, <laughs> so I really appreciate that and, and thanks so much. That, that was great. Thanks a lot. Great. Uh, next question. Hey, thanks so much for doing this. Um, going back to the studies out today, um, the second study was on a Chinese trial. And I'm just wondering where you see the Chinese in pursuit of a vaccine. This was a phase two trial as opposed to phase one. Can, do you trust this data? And, and where do you see the, the, the Chinese? In this was the whole killed coronavirus trial? Yes. Uh, it was Sorry, um, it was a, um, sorry, I'm looking for it now. Um, it was a trial from, it wasn't the Sino folks. Uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm not um, working very fast today. It was in the, okay, here it is. Um, Chinese phase two, uh, Adeno five, yes, five, um, A5. Uh, 85 trial, actually, a vectored, vac vectored vaccine candidate conducted in China. So that's the ADENO-5 trial. Yes. And 
um, and uh, that is moving forward um, in military recruits. I'd love to know what the informed consent forms look like, um, but nonetheless, um, uh, there's a real limitation to that vaccine, and that is Adeno-5 is a relatively common adenovirus. Lots of people already in uh, most populations have natural prior infections with this virus, and um, it is likely to be limited in its effectiveness because the vaccine itself would be somewhat uh, compromised by the immune response to the backbone of the vaccine. So um, it's likely in those that did not have antibody to be as good as the chimpanzee adenovirus that came out today. The reason chimpadeno was taken is humans have very little prior background, although even in that trial, 11% of the people in the trial had antibodies to the spike protein, which was quite interesting. Probably indicating in the UK, even healthy people had subclinical infection or asymptomatic infection. So I think the virus is likely to be no better or worse than any other adenovirus, but worse in the sense that people will not respond nearly as well. They found, uh, I think a little over half had already had antibodies. Um, yeah. but, and, and they, I can't figure out if they parsed out how those people responded versus everybody else, but they did have a pretty high response rate. Yeah, no, they'll make responses, but it won't be as high as it would be for the Adenel with two shots, I think. Okay. And, and do you trust the level of, of research that's coming out? This was a Lancet paper, so presumably. Yeah, I, I, I can't, I don't know the investigators in, in the companies uh, and the state agencies that are producing vaccine. Um, I have a great respect for the scientists early on and continuing um, in China who have reported everything on January uh, 9th, um, the DNA sequence, uh, January 29th, the clinical decision, the, sorry, the case definition of what a coronavirus case looks like that has informed doctors all over the world. Um, I am grateful for uh, those in uh, Hong Kong University who did the first epidemiologic modeling that predicted that no one had immunity to this and it was going to be a global epidemic of very significant significance. Um, there are a lot of really good scientists in China and it really um, is unfortunate that local officials uh, thought they could uh, cover up an epidemic early on. Epidemics cannot be covered up. But I think from the announcements in China, um, they have been pretty transparent and the science has been awfully good. And I think to see good science uh, criticized on political grounds rather than scientific grounds is unfair and not helpful to all of us trying to deal with the epidemic. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Bloom, I have a quick question about that. Do you know why they might use a human adenovirus instead of the chimp adenovirus? Because, uh, because very few people were clever enough to figure an, a non-human adenovirus um, could be used instead of uncommon strains. For example, Johnson & Johnson 
and Janssen, the European uh, uh, part of that company, is using an ADNO 26, which is a human ADNO, but is very uncommon and has uh, fewer antibodies than ADNO 5. But for chimp ADNO, the pre premise was that nobody would be likely to have antibodies unless they happen to cross-react with some common determinant. So it was a, a very clever choice by the Oxford people, Adrian Hill, uh, for which I give them great credit. Thank you. Next question. Hi, um, I, I wanted to circle back to uh, the, there's a lot of optimism now over vaccine and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of set expectations since there's so many of us on this call who are writing about this. Um, we, we know that, well, you know that a fair amount of uh, vaccine candidates fail in the late trials. So I wonder if you could just sort of talk about how optimistic should we be that there will actually will be a successful vaccine out of uh, these many um, candidates right now and, and a rough timeline on when. I know you mentioned don't expect millions of them or billions of, of vaccines on January 1, but uh, please, please dig into that a little bit. It's very hard to predict which ones will prove to be um, the most effective. You can't do that. You can't even guess that um, before phase three trials. For example, in the very limited number of non-human primate studies, it looks like antibodies to the receptor binding site on the spike protein that has the ability to block its ability to infect cells in a test tube, provided protection against disease in rhesus monkeys. I would point out two things. One is it didn't prevent infection. Now, they were challenged with significant doses uh, in the nose in the monkeys. Um, what you would like a vaccine to do is prevent infection. So the monkeys didn't get sick, they didn't develop COVID, but rhesus monkeys don't develop the serious adverse effects seen in humans in quite serious uh, cases of COVID at the 15% of people who end up in uh, ICUs. So um, it suggests that you may end up with a vaccine that doesn't completely prevent infection may prevent disease or serious disease. That would be certainly better than we're doing without a vaccine, but it would not be ideal. The ideal would be a vaccine that prevents infection, such that people who have it not only don't have reduced viral loads in their respiratory tract, but have no infectious virus in their respiratory tract. And that can only be done in phase three studies um, looking at people who do get infected, and there are ways that can be done to distinguish between whether someone is immunized to the S protein by a vaccine and has a natural infection, and one could do that by looking at antibody responses to some other antigen in COVID, not in the vaccine. So I think it's possible to ascertain whether the virus prevents disease, which is what the trial is designed to do, but it's also possible to prevent infection, and that would be ideal. 
And the second is the only way to know how effective that is, is in a phase three study. And that leads to another qualifier. Both of these vaccines have been tested in healthy young people ages 18 to 55. That's exactly the group that doesn't have the highest rate of serious um, uh, consequences and intensive care and intubation and death. So the phase two studies have to include, or phase three studies have to include vulnerable groups, uh, a key one of which is people over the age of 50. Some of the vaccine trials that are being planned have scheduled for people over the age of 50 to 60, 60 to 70, and 70 to 80. And the other vulnerable groups that we don't fully understand why they're so vulnerable are African-Americans and Hispanics, and they would have to be included in a vaccine, both to ascertain whether we're all equally susceptible to adverse effects and whether we're all equally able to be protected. And that has to be included, hopefully, uh, to some extent in late stage phase two studies, but for sure in phase three studies. Um, let me let me press you a little bit on um, the the odds here because you know I, I'm thinking of my mother. She's going to ask me, "Are we going to get a vaccine?" And she wants a one sentence answer because all the rest of this means nothing to her. So, would you venture uh, an answer to that? Absolutely, for sure. And we will get more than one vaccine. Um, and any, I have to say that I read the guidelines from the FDA for the companies producing the vaccines for uh, consideration of approval by the FDA. And I have to say that um, I have been concerned that these emergency use authorizations for drugs like remdesivir um, were put out pretty easily, I would say, without all the data that I would have liked to have seen. I have to say that the um, uh, AUAE, uh, sorry, U, uh, UEAs for um, the diagnostic serological tests, non-diagnostic serological tests, uh, they approved 100 tests on what the company said they were able to do in terms of specificity and sensitivity. That didn't make any sense to me. And of course, they then went through the list and shortened it to those that had some demonstrable, uh, confirmable uh, sensitivity and specificity. So there was reason to worry that the FDA would take another shortcut on getting vaccines out quickly. And I'm pleased to say um, I'm pretty confident that the guidelines that they put out are the same as they would be in rigor for any vaccine that we would make available to any healthy human beings in this country. I don't see any shortcuts there. Um, they're going to propose very large numbers of people for phase three trials. They're going to look at all the right things. They're going to get data on adverse effects. If there was any concern that I have, it is that um, there is something after phase three called phase four studies 
which are post-licensure surveillance, we're looking for adverse effects that are going to occur in a phase three trial between now and January. And we'll get, I think, good data on that for every candidate uh, that the FDA will consider. There may be adverse effects that are longer to show up, that won't show up in the first 15,000 people or in the first three months. And that's something where post-licensure surveillance that is simply following up recipients, uh, asking them to report any adverse effects for the first year or two, particularly those who have been reinfected and whether having been immunized causes a worse response after reinfection. There's no reason to anticipate that, but we want to measure that. That was made uh, non-explicit as to whether that was a requirement or voluntary, and it should be a requirement in my view. Otherwise, I, you can tell your mother that the safety and efficacy testing is as good as we've ever done for any vaccine. And you can also tell her that I thought if it's as good as flu, which is 50% protective, I'd be pleased. I'd be a lot more pleased if it was 75 or 85% or even better. But we lose 16,000 people a year from flu, and we have a vaccine that's 50% effective. We could save a lot of lives, even with a partially effective vaccine. And we will, I am confident, have more than one vaccine that achieves that endpoint. Uh, thank, great. Thank you for that. You, you did, uh, and I just want to clarify, you said absolutely we will get a vaccine, and now you've just said we'll probably have more than one. Um, would you venture a guess on time frame for when we would have a, a useful vaccine um, that is available to a lot of people? I'll leave that up kind of open-ended for you. I can't answer that, and I think no one really can, um, because this has to do with um, stuff beyond the skills and expertise of the scientific community that has designed these vaccines. We're now talking about um, how to take a safe vaccine that is uh, gone through phase three and produces and producing hundreds of millions of doses. We know uh, in the US, if it's a one-shot vaccine, we would like 300 million doses. As of the moment, I don't believe there's a single company that can make a 300 million doses. That's one of the advantages having multiple producers, because if no one producer has the scale to do everybody, we may have to use two or three vaccines, each of which is protective and safe, but each of which has a different company and a different capability of production. So the production capacity has to be very big. What is extraordinary in this case is several of the companies, AstraZeneca for the Oxford vaccine, um, Johnson & Johnson for their vaccine, are already committing to scale up to the 100 million to 300 million and possibly a billion doses, investing in building a factory that costs literally tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars before they know whether their vaccine is safe and effective. That's never happened before. 
And that's why things are being sped up. So several of the vaccines will have scale producers even before we know they're safe and effective. Once that is done, then I hope someone in the government, probably CDC, if it still exists after the current cutbacks, um, has to get each of the 50 states to be able to deliver vaccines to people who need it. And that requires a distribution system after it is decided what is the fairest way and who are the highest priority people to get the vaccine to. We need probably a cold chain and maybe a sophisticated cold chain, for example, for RNA vaccines. We need a distribution system that keeps it cold, a reporting system to show who got it, and whether there are any adverse effects that occur late on. And all of that is a complicated business that is generally run through the national immunization scheme and state public health offices. And I don't think they have been tooled up at the moment to deal with the possibility that it could occur by January 2nd. They're gonna be called upon uh, to deliver those vaccines to people in a rational way. Great, thank, thank you, I appreciate all the detail. Dr. Bloom, it looks like this may be the last question for today. Did you have any uh, final thoughts for us? Uh, I think it's very exciting to have two vaccines that have gone through phase one and one for phase two studies. And um, the unlikely possibility uh, that we will have vaccines ready for approval and large scale distribution by the end of the year that seemed utterly crazy seven months ago uh, may well be a real possibility. I would say not to dismiss those that are not in the first run. All of those we've discussed, as far as I'm aware, require two shots. That is a huge burden on the health system in developing countries, getting people back a month later to get a second shot is really challenging. Even in the US, that's very challenging to do. There are vaccines that are in the works um, uh, that would require or designed to require only one shot, but they will not be in the first uh, cohort that has um, met the requirements for safety and efficacy. So we will not finish the vaccine story by January 1. We will really just be starting it. Uh, Dr. Bloom, a quick question for you. You were saying that um, some of these vaccines require two shots. Um, why do you need those two shots? Is the, one, is the second one to ensure a longer uh, period of protection, or does that actually uh, make the protection better? How, what's, why do you need the two shots? Uh, because the first shot don't work optimally in the vaccines that we've discussed. And for example, for the um, Oxford vaccine, uh, the antibody produced was not very high in about half of the individuals after one shot, but all of them got up there after the second shot. That was also true in the 45 people in the RNA vaccine of Moderna, also to be the case. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Bloom. And uh, and if I could just say, we don't have any idea 
how long the antibodies, if they're the key element of any of these vaccines last, because the time hasn't been long enough to follow out how long effective they are if they are effective. This concludes the July 20th press conference.